you please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 9? Psalm 9. This is a longer psalm, the longest we've considered so far. Um, This psalm of David is a hymn, a song of praise, and a prayer. As as we look at it, we'll find that all three of these components are significant, the, the song, the praise, and the prayer. Listen now as I read Psalm 9. The title is, I will recount your wonderful deeds. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uh, with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who, have, from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your perfect word. Thank you for giving us all that we need for life and godliness in this book. We pray that you would help us to see and understand the truth of this psalm this morning. We pray that you would press the truth down into our hearts. We pray that through your word, by your spirit, we would be changed, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be sanctified by your truth and to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Lord, we pray that you would make us worthy of your calling and by your spirit help us to fulfill every resolve for good and every good work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in us and us in you according to the grace of our Lord, of God, and our our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for myself that even as I preach, that you would strengthen me. I pray that I would only preach things that are helpful and true and to the sense of the meaning of the text, that I would not bring new things, but true things for your glory and our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What does justice in our minds look like? What does it mean for justice to be done in the here and now? This is no small issue. Justice has, and has always been important to those with a biblical worldview. 
That is, justice is a key part of the Christian life. It always has been and it always must be. There is broad agreement that justice is important. No one should get injustice, right? Micah 6.8 says, after all, that he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. But what does that mean? Where do we look for our ultimate justice? There are those who are wrongly so wrapped up in getting justice in the here and now that they're in danger of losing or have already lost sight of true biblical justice that is coming. And at the same time, there are those who think wrongly that justice in this life really doesn't matter and that those being dealt an injustice should just keep quiet, that they should just grin and bear it because this world is passing away and none of it matters anyway. Now, to be clear, I used extremes on both ends of the justice spectrum to draw a distinction. I'm not saying that all those who are fighting for justice now have lost sight of the truth that God will do justice in the end, and that those who are at the other end of the spectrum never care about the here and now needs of people made in the image of God who are not getting justice, because they deserve justice based on being image bearers. But what I am saying is that both of these groups are getting something wrong. I think what we see here in Psalm 9 is a great example of what it looks like to pray for justice or deliverance in the here and now, and at the same time, trust that ultimate justice will be done by the Lord, by God who is the Lord of all. What we see in this psalm is a hymn of praise and prayer. It is David singing praise to God for both his justice and his mercy. This is more than a praise to the Lord for what he has done in general but a thanks for specific acts, things done that David has kept track of. Before we get any deeper into the psalm, I want to lay out the structure. I'll follow as I do. Um, There are a hundred ways to divide this psalm, but we'll um, take it in in, in two main parts. The the first section, verses 1 through 12, are devoted to the praise of God. Again, for specific things that the Lord has done. And then the second part, the rest of it, verses 13 through 20, Um, This flows out of part one. This flows out of the thanks. This is a prayer for deliverance. But even in this prayer, the confidence David has that the Lord will hear and answer is so great, it's as if he's already thanking the Lord for things not done yet as though they were. So David trusts that the Lord will do what he says he will do. Beyond the two main parts, the verses seem to be in couplets, that is two verses at a time, and that's more or less how we'll take it this morning. So with that, let's look to verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 9 again. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. David begins this hymn with thanks. This sets the tone for the rest of the psalm. David is determined to thank God for all that he has done. Each phrase of these two verses has enough to preach a whole sermon, but since these verses are about 10% of the whole, I'm going to have to limit myself to pointing each phrase out and briefly commenting on it. So the first phrase, I will give thanks with my whole heart. The phrase, my whole heart is a stand-in for all of him. David is thanking God with his whole person, as opposed to either being half-hearted, either either a half-hearted thanks or a double-hearted thanks. Now hang with me and I'll clarify what I mean. To half-heartedly thank the Lord would be in the same vein 
as a child being forced to thank their great aunt for a birthday present they have no interest in. They may say, gee, thanks for the socks, Aunt Louise, when they really mean, come on, I deserve better than this. At least give me a couple bucks in cash. This is false thanks, false praise, half-hearted gratitude. We must not do this. Yet we so often take for granted what the Lord has so graciously provided us. Just for a single example, how often do we give a half-hearted thanks before we eat? A a perfunctory thanks for the food and then dig in. Without stopping to really consider the gracious provision that the Lord has made for us. Every meal we eat is a gift from His hand. Even if we paid for it from, by the sweat of our brow, the ability to work is still a gift of the Lord. Each breath is a gift from the Lord. To thank God with a double heart is to thank Him with our lips, but inwardly take credit for whatever it is. This is like an athlete or actor winning an award and thanking God with a speech somewhere along the lines of, I'd like to thank God for making me awesome. This is nothing new. Calvin noted that this double-heartedness is a piece of pure mockery. Folks who never had a thought of God thank Him, not, act, not to actually give Him praise, but to draw attention to their accomplishment. When they thank God in this way, they're trying to share in His glory. They're trying to get some of the, the glory that should be going all to God. They try to reflect in some of that. We must also repent of this. We cannot take credit for any of God's work in our lives. This includes our very salvation. To do this puts us squarely in the camp of the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. The one who thanks God for for not making him like other men, like that dumb tax collector over there, that heathen. David continues, I will recount your wonderful deeds. This is more than a general thankfulness, but a specific recounting of the goodness of God. This is the key to wholehearted praise and thankfulness. Generalities are good, specifics are better. David will lay out specifics as we go on. Verse 2 says, I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. David does more than recite a list. He sings. He sings publicly. This engages his heart at yet a deeper level. He is praising God Most High with every fiber of his being. And when he sings, he's bringing others along with him into praising God. Spurgeon says, There is true praise in the thankful telling forth to others of our Heavenly Father's dealings with us. This is one of the themes upon which the godly should speak more often to one another. And it would not be casting pearls before swine. And that's wait, it's not wasting our time if we even make the ungodly hear of the loving kindness of the Lord to us. Nothing is wasted when we praise God before others. This is why singing in church is so important. Belting out hymns, packed with the truth of God's works, His wisdom, His glory, with our whole hearts, is worship. And this worship is not primarily about generating a feeling in ourselves. It's not just getting in the mood to worship or the mood of worship. And it's not just you singing to God individually in a room where other folks happen to be singing the same song. No, singing in church is about proclaiming the truth of God to His praise and to one another. When we sing in church, we are also singing to one another. We're teaching one another. We're reminding one another who God is, what He has done, and how great He is. 
We sing collectively about the great work of redemption that, that Christ has accomplished. We sing to one another, recounting the wonderful deeds of God to exalt in him as a church. This is why we should sing at the tops of our voices every Sunday morning. Because if we don't, we rob one another of the full intention of God's command for us to sing. This took me a long time to learn, because I can't carry a tune in a bucket. But that's not the point. Mumbling or lip-syncing or deciding we'd rather be somewhere else on Sunday morning robs both God and our neighbor. We must sing together here loudly for the glory of God and the good of our brothers and sisters with us. David continues his song in the next few verses, recounting the wonderful deeds he mentioned in verse 1. So verses 3 through 6. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. These are just the beginnings of the deeds of the Lord that, that David is recounting. The Lord has defeated his enemies. He has made them turn back just by showing up. The enemies of God cannot stand before him. They must run away from just his being there. Now, we know that God is everywhere present and that there is nowhere to get away from his presence, as though God is here but not there. But what David means here is that when God makes himself known, none of his enemies can stand. They must turn back. They must stumble. They cannot keep on the course they have set. David tells us why in verse 4. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. This is the first mention of justice in the psalm. God's justice will out. It will come. His will is sure to be done. We know, and David knew, that this might not happen in the time frame we would like. We don't know the timing of this psalm in David's life, but whenever it was, we know that David spent a good portion of time running from either Saul or the Philistines or both. And I'm sure he would rather God have taken, his, taken care of his enemies sooner than he did, whenever that time was. But in the end, God did. David's enemies were gone. They stumbled. They were removed. They perished. God gave them righteous judgment. He rebuked the peoples in rebellion against him. David trusted that God would do what is right in the time he chose. And God did. He so removed David's enemies, it was as if they never existed. He blotted out their name forever and ever. He removed the, 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 the very memory of them has perished. It's gone. And we see that David said he rebuked the enemies. The rebuke of God here is twofold. It is both an expression of wrath and it is God's defense of the righteous. One commentator said, God is the divine warrior who rebukes in a revelation of his power over the world and of his deep love for his own. What do we as Christians do with these verses, as well as the rest of the imprecatory psalms, the ones that call for the Lord to destroy our enemies? Are we to take them and run? Are we to pray for the destruction and ruin of our enemies? Are we to pray that God smite them into dust and banish their memory? 
Well, the answer to that question is both yes and no. In Matthew 5 and Luke 6, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. Matthew 5, says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So how do we reconcile these two ideas? How do we reconcile Psalm 9 with Matthew 5? How then do we pray? We pray that our hearts would be right toward our enemies and that God in His grace would bring our enemies to faith and repentance. This is the greater miracle, not to simply destroy our enemies by grinding them to dust, but to destroy our enemies by making them new, by making them our brothers in Christ. That is the true destruction of our enemies. In addition, James Montgomery Boyce reminds us that there is one area in which we can echo David's words wholeheartedly, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ's victory over Satan. Satan is our great spiritual enemy, a ruthless enemy, but Jesus has defeated him. Satan is active, yet he is a defeated foe. We can praise God for that. Moving from verse 6 to the next two stanzas in verses 7 through 10, we see a contrast of the enemies of God's people and God himself. Calvin helpfully says here, the contrast between the power of the enemies of God and his people and the work of God in breaking up their proceedings very well illustrates the wonderful character of the help which he granted his people. The ungodly set on themselves no limit in the work of doing mischief save the utter destruction of all things. And when they started to complete destruction, when this seemed to be at hand, but when things were in a state of confusion, God seasonably made his appearance for the help of his people. So listen here for the contrast between the enemies and the Lord. Verse 7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Do you hear it? At the end of verse 6, David says, The very memory of them, the enemies, has perished. Consider that against the language describing God. God is there, more he is seated on his throne, sitting and reigning forever. The Lord is on his throne and he is going nowhere. He established his throne for justice. That is, God is reigning to do justice. He is not like the false gods who rule for their own pleasure. He is not like Baal or Zeus or Moloch who demand human sacrifice and blood and pain and are fickle even then. No, our God, the Lord God, is just and righteous and judges the world that way. Because he is there and just, we can trust that even when it looks as though the wicked will win and get away with it, at some point, God's hands of justice will reach out and touch them. This should be terrifying and comforting. Terrifying because our sin will find us out. And our, on our own, we can do nothing about it. We cannot work it off. We cannot bribe our way out from under God's justice. We cannot pay our way to freedom. But it is comforting because we know that in Christ, our sin is gone. When we trust that Christ is who he says he is, that he did what he said he would do, and that he rose again and is now seated at the right hand of the Father because his work is done, as it says in Hebrews 12 too, God's justice demands payment for sin. 
And when our sin is atoned for in Christ because he is just, we can know that he will not demand payment twice. If Christ paid for your sin, it is paid for. We can rest in that. Does that not give you peace? When Christ paid for, what Christ paid for in his blood is paid for. He bought it and took it home with him. No one pays for something and walks out of the store leaving the purchases on the counter on purpose. If you have put your faith in Christ, you have been bought and paid for. You are secure. But if you have not trusted in Christ, you are not safe. Justice is coming, and there is, that is not something we look forward to. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's just rule and righteous reign is why we can pray. As one commentator said, the hope of the godly during duress remains in the presence of God's kingdom. Though not always apparent, Yahweh is king. No one can deprive God of his office as the judge of the world, nor prevent him from extending his judgments to all nations. And because of this, because of the character of God, verses 9 and 10 can be true. It is because God is on his throne that the oppressed can come to him. Because he is just, he is the stronghold for the poor. These verses are a celebration of God's character. He is there, and he is where we must go when the world is against us. Which happens to be all the time since the fall. We must always find our refuge in him. He will answer in his time, in the season he determines... And that means the Lord will always act at the right time. Either he will deliver the oppressed from trouble, or he will enable them to endure it to the end. This is the true hope for those experiencing injustice. Either the Lord will deliver them in the here and now, or they will get justice in the hereafter. We must work for justice now, but also know that God's ways are not our ways. In the vast majority of history... The hope of the oppressed has been in the Lord and Him only, not in the government or anyone else making things right. That is not to say that governments shouldn't care about justice, but it is to say that we must place our hope in the right ruler. That is the one who rules forever. We see this in the story, of, uh, in the story that Jesus told of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus got, his, got injustice his entire earthly life. While the rich man seemed to benefit from doing injustice, or at least not doing justice to Lazarus, who sat at his gate. But in the end, we see Lazarus get justice in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man get justice in hell. We can trust that no matter what, God will do what is right, especially for those who know him, which is what we see in verse 10. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know the Lord, really know him, will put their trust in him. To know the Lord is to trust him. And to know and trust him is to be known by him and cared for by him. I will let the Apostle Paul speak to this in Romans 8, 29 through 32. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a sure thing. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Those whom God knows are all the way his, and nothing can change that. More than that, because they are his, he will give them all that they need. All they need, as surely as Christ who lives and reigns is our salvation. It would take a power great enough to drag our Lord from his throne in heaven and put him back in the grave to undo this. That is how secure we are. That is how secure we who know God by faith are in Christ. All the way secure. And if we are secure in him, that means we can and should attempt great things for him. That means we can and should stand up for what is right without fear. That means we can take children who need a, take in children into our homes who need a home. It means we can stand in front of abortion mills preaching the gospel without hesitation. It means we support missionaries in the field. It means we must live our whole lives with the goal of fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples and teaching them everything the Lord Jesus tells us in his word. It means that we must pour ourselves out to the glory of God in all that we do. There is no part of our lives that is untouched by the Lordship of Christ. Verse 11 and 12 of Psalm 9. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. David now calls for the nation to join him in singing praises to the Lord for who he is and what he has done. David is moving from singing a solo to calling the entire congregation to join him. He calls for the whole world to hear of the faithfulness of the one who sits and rules justly from his throne. This includes the Gentiles. This is a call for repentance and a notice. Repent or you will be judged. Come to the Lord in humility or have his vengeance fall upon you. There is no neutral ground to stand out of the way. What we see in verse 12 is another reason why we can pray. God will do justice. He will avenge his people. He will hear and remember the cry of the afflicted. We might not see it in our lives or in our timing, but justice will be done. This is why we pray, as the church father Christentum said. Prayer is a haven to the shipwrecked man, an anchor to them that are sinking in the waves, a staff to the limbs that totter, a mine of jewels to the poor, a healer of diseases, and a guardian of health. Prayer at once secures the continuance of our blessings and dissipates the clouds of our calamities. Oh, blessed prayer, thou art the unwearied conqueror of human woes, the firm foundation of human happiness, the source of never-ending joy, the mother of philosophy, the man who can truly pray, though languishing in the extremest poverty, is richer than all besides. Whilst the wretch who never bowed the knee, though sitting proudly as a monarch of all nations, is of all men the most destitute. If you pray, if you can pray, and you have the Lord, you have everything. If you have everything and not the Lord, you have nothing. David continues in the next stanza, verses 13 and 14. 
Here we see the first petition, the first request that he makes. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. Over half this psalm is praise, recounting what the Lord has done. It is only after this that David begins to ask God for things. And when he finally does, he asks that he might be delivered so he can praise God all the more. This is the way we ought to pray, following the example of David. He first reminds us and himself who the Lord is and what he has done in the past. And in doing this, he puts himself his enemies, and the Lord, each in their proper perspective before making his request. And to be clear, this is a request, a lower asking favor from a greater. David is not demanding anything. And what he did ask for was grounded in what God has already promised him and in the character that he has revealed in his word. It is as if David said, Lord, you are just and righteous. You have delivered me from my enemies before, and I have praised you for it. Please do it again that I might praise you even more. But notice that even deliverance from enemies was not David's, what, what, what David prayed for first. He first prayed for grace. James Montgomery Boyce reminds us that David never approached God on the basis of any supposed goodness in himself or any achievement for which he believed he should be rewarded. He always came as a sinner seeking mercy. One more thing to notice before moving on is that David is asking for deliverance, that that David asking for deliverance from the gates of death points forward to the day when Christ will deliver all his people from the power of death to hold them by defeating death itself on the cross. David looked forward to the day when death would be defeated, and we look forward in faith to the day when death will die forever. At the same time, we look back to the work of God in the past that we might trust him in the future. The first thing we look back to is the cross, but we also look back to the ways that God has delivered us from trouble in our lives since our salvation. This is part of what it means to recount the wonderful deeds of the Lord. He works wonderful things all the time. Each breath, each provision is a work of the Lord, and we must praise and thank Him for them. Not only in private, but in public, that all the world may know the glorious mercy of God. The next few verses are the outworking of what David just prayed for. Verse 15. The nations have sunk in the pit they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. These are the results of God's judgment. Often the very traps laid by the wicked are their downfall. Calvin said, as often, therefore, as wicked men cunningly plot our destruction, let us remember that there is no new thing for them. It is no new thing for them to lay nets and snares for the children of God. At the same time, let us comfort ourselves from the reflection that whatever they may attempt against us, the issue is not in their power, and that God will also be against them, not only to frustrate their designs, but also to surprise them in the wicked devices which they frame, and to make that all their resources of mischief fall upon their own heads. Think of the evil Haman in the book of Esther, who plotted 
and planned and carefully laid out the ruin of an entire people. Then he composed, he, he, he constructed a gallows to hang his mortal enemy Mordecai on. What happened to Haman? He hung upon the very gallows he planned to use Mordecai for Mordecai. He had everything he planned for evil turn around and collapse on top of him. In verse 16, we see the Lord, that the Lord has made himself known, and with that followed judgment. When God makes himself known, one of two things happens. Either repentance and faith or judgment. There's no neutrality. There's no way to stand out of the way of God's judgment but in Christ. He is the only refuge from the justice and wrath of God because he has already taken both of them on the cross. And in him, there is no wrath left. We must remember this. This is where hope is found. It is also where the strength to fight and resist sin is found because sin is tricky. Sin is wily, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. Sin is crouching at the door, waiting to overtake, waiting to overcome. And it's not always dressed in red tights with pitchforks. It lies and cheats and steals. Roger South says, The wages that sin bargains with, with the sinner, are life and pleasure and profit. But the wages it pays with are torment and death and destruction. He that would understand the falsehood and deceit of sin must compare its promises and payments together. We must remember that sin is death and Christ is life. This is why we need the gospel preached to us every week. This is why we must preach the gospel to ourselves every waking minute to remind us of this truth, that there is no life outside of Christ. Outside of him, it is all a desert of death full of mirages. David continues in verses 17 and 18. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. These verses show the continued results of God's justice, both for the wicked and for the righteous. The wicked will end up judged and in hell, as will all the nations that forget God. This shows the scale of God's justice, from the individual rebel sinner, think Haman, to the nations who hate God, think Sodom or Jericho or the Midianites. These cities, each in their own way, rebelled primarily against God. Yes, they sinned against people, but their first order sin was against God himself. And in their sin lay the seed of their own destruction. This again should give us hope and peace. Not that we will never be touched by evil in the world. We almost certainly will. But we can remember, we can know that judgment is coming for them. And if we remember from last week, Romans 8, 28, we know that all things that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We can trust that with all that happens, that everything fits into this somehow, even when we can't see it. Calvin again. When, therefore, we see the wicked flying aloft, devoid of all fear, let us, by the eyes of faith, behold the grave which is prepared for them. And rest assured that the hand of God, though it is unseen, is very near, which can turn them back in the midst of their course in which they aim at reaching heaven and make them tumble into, the, into hell in a moment. He continues, Let us therefore remember that God has promised his assistance to us, 
not in the way of preventing our afflictions, but to the end of giving aid to us. After we have long been subdued under the cross, David speaks expressly of hope or expectation, thereby to encourage us to prayer. The reason why God seems to take no notice of our affliction is because he would have us to awaken him by means of our prayers. When he hears our requests, it is as if he began but then to be mindful of us. He stretches forth his hand to help us. God wants us to pray for him, or pray to him, not for him. God needs no prayer. God wants us to pray to him. That is why he allows affliction to come, that we will pray. David ends this psalm with his second request in verses 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, let, not the, let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. Augustine said of verse 19, what does this mean? Are we to consider the psalmist as praying for the destruction of his enemies, as pronouncing a curse upon them? No, these are not the words of one who is wishing that mischief may happen to his enemies. They are the words of a prophet, one of one who is foretelling in scriptural language that evil must befall them on account of their sins. David is asking that the Lord do justice to the wicked. And he has absolute trust that they will, and so he prays. One most virgin quote. I can't help myself. Prayers are the believer's weapons of war. When the battle is too hard for us, we call in our great ally who, as it were, lies in ambush until faith gives a signal by crying out, Arise, O Lord, although our cause be all but lost, it shall soon be won again if the Almighty doth but bestir himself. He will not suffer men to prevail over God, but with swift judgments will confound their glorings. In the very sight of God, the wicked will be punished, and he who is all tenderness now will have no heart of compassion for them, since they had no tears of repentance while their day of grace endured. In the last verse, David asks the Lord to remind those who hate him who they are. Put them in their place, Lord. To paraphrase Calvin, it is as though David said, Lord, they don't know what they're up against. My enemies are raging against your people. Show them your power and their weakness. Shame them into submission. Show the world how stupid it is to rebel against you. This rebellion is a result of pride. But true humility is knowing who you are before God. Every man, woman, and child has a problem with pride. It is natural since the fall. It is the default setting for humanity. And so God, in his mercy, makes himself known and terrifies everyone. Catching a glimpse of the greatness of God, even in the Romans 1.20 sense of seeing his eternal power and divine nature in the things that have been made, strikes the honest man with terror, and so makes him humble. But there are two kinds of humbleness. The first kind of humility is that of God's own people. The kind of humility that leads to repentance and a deeper understanding of the grace and glory of God. When the true child of God understands who he is in relation to his Lord, he starts to trust the Lord instead of himself. He starts to understand the magnitude of the mercy of God towards sinners in the person and work of Jesus. And it causes him to repent and trust all the more. The second kind of humility is the kind that leads to self-hatred. 
the kind that denies the existence of God even in the face of all the universe that shouts His glory. This second kind of humility says that since there is no God, man has no real meaning. It lowers the value of everything, including mankind. This leads to the kind of rebellion we see all around us. If there is no God and no ultimate meaning, if all people are just walking, dying meat bags, then nothing matters. All there is left to do is whatever gives the fleeting illusion of pleasure. Whether that means divorce for any reason, or abortion on demand, or sexual liberation, or dying on your own terms, or lying and stealing and cheating to get ahead, or any other number of things done in opposition to God's law, as Paul tells us in Romans 1, 29 and 30. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. But even in doing these very things in opposition to God, there is not only the seed, but the fruit of his judgment. It is a downward spiral of judgment leading to more sin, leading to more judgment, all of it storing up, the, storing up wrath for the day to come when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It is a hopeless cycle. The only way out is repentance. The only way forward is to trust in Christ and then sing of the great grace of God who saves. The God who takes rebellious sinners by the heart and gives them a heart transplant, removing their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh that now beats for him. It is only with this new heart that we can trust in him. It is only when we come to the end of ourselves and turn to Christ that we find we can. It is only when we remember that we are but poor men in need of mercy, when we are reminded that God is a just, righteous, and ruling God, that we are humbled enough to come to him for mercy. It is only when we put down our weapons and surrender unconditionally that we will be saved. But when we are saved, we are saved all the way. God does nothing by half measures. Those he saves, he saves to the uttermost. We have nothing left to do then but sing to him with one another, recounting all that he has done. Let's pray. Father, help us to recount, to remember the great works of grace you have done, beginning with the cross of Christ, but from there extending down to each breath you give us. Help us to praise you as individual Christians and as a church for all that you have done. Remind us when we forget that you reign on the throne of justice and that you are not going anywhere. Help us to pray as sinners seeking mercy, but redeemed sinners confident that you will hear us and care. Help us to rejoice in our salvation and to keep everything in perspective, knowing that justice will be done because you are on the throne. I pray for those hearing me who are not safe from your justice in Christ. I pray that you would save them, that you would bring them to repentance and faith, and that they too would praise you for your great grace.